Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. I've got some questions here. We thought a fun idea for the dish today could be subjecting Galit to bassoon-specific trivia (laughs) to see how much she knows about our side of the double read world. Now, on the next episode, she's going to return the favor, and I'm going to have to answer oboe trivia. I'm not scurred because I did teach in a double read position for five years, so if I don't know anything... That'll be a little, you know, questionable. And I feel like it's it's generally true that oboists notoriously know less about everyone else because we're just all about ourselves. Well, I'm not going to touch that, but <laughs> I am going to test you. I'm so scared. On your bassoon knowledge. Are you ready? Yeah. I tried to come up with things from all over. Um, so, you know, let's just dig in. Name, please, Galit, five brands of bassoons. Okay. Heckle. One. Mooseman. Two. Bell. Three. Puchner. Four. Yamaha. Five. <laughs> yes. Good job. Okay. Question one, and you're nailing it. I'm nailing it. Name (laughs) two bassoon sonatas that were not composed by Camille Sanson. God, I was going to say (laughs) Sanson. Okay. 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 (laughs) This first name that comes to mind is Uberdu, and that is not right. Not that I know of. I'm not the biggest rep head, so I hope that I have correct answers for my trivia questions. Sonata that's not Sanson. Two sonatas that are not Sanson. I'll take even one, but. Uh, uh, (laughs) I really was thinking (laughs) Sanson. 
what is that one? It like starts with an O or something. Osborne, Osborne. No, that's a Rhapsody. Not Dang a it. Sonata. <laughs> uh, I'll give you one more guess. Uh, Pulak. No. <laughs> He died before he got to our sonata. Dang. We did not get a sonata from Poulonk. The clarinet one killed him. What? Name some. Fosh, Hurlstone. Oh. Hurlstone. Uh, Gould. Gould. <laughs> you can't take those now. What is the lowest note on the bassoon? Is it a low A? <laughs> It is not a low A. It's a low B flat, though. You're close. Literally the same as oboe. Literally the same. Yes. Yes. Okay, Literally okay. the same as oboe. You're right. This is fun. Give me another one. Listen, technically we can play a low A, but we have to put in the PVC extension. That's what I meant. It is not. I'm calling your bluff. Okay. Um. Name five standard orchestral excerpts for the bassoon now listen i'm divesting from a concept of standard but for the sake of well-known bassoon trivia we're uh-huh. gonna delve into that oh i got this i got this i got this i got this beethoven four yes marriage of figaro yes tchaikovsky six yes that's three tchaikovsky four Yes. Scheherazade. Very good. Very good. (laughs) Um, In what key is the Mozart bassoon concerto? Oh, no. F? It is not F. B flat. B flat is correct. (laughs) Yes. Baber's an F. I was just going to keep adding flat. A flat. A flat. B flat. That was my plan. (laughs) Okay. What is a balance hanger? It's a thing you wear to enable you to play standing. (laughs) I'll give you half a point. It's a thing you wear. It's a thing your bassoon wears. Oh. <laughs> Oops. It changes the angle and weight distribution of when playing. You were in the same, like, galaxy as okay. the correct answer. Okay. I'm just like, can you stand? Great. <laughs> Name three pieces for the bassoon by women and or BIPOC individuals. Okay. Five Sacred Trees. <laughs> That is by John Williams, but it was composed <laughs> for a woman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. By women or BIPOC. Famous bassoon pieces. They don't have to be like super famous. We, okay. have, we have work to do in that area. Uh, is there anything by Valerie Coleman? Technically that include the bassoon, yes. Oh, but we're talking about like bassoon centric. Ideally, I would be willing to give you part of a point for knowing that Valerie <laughs> Coleman composes and then coincidentally she includes, has works that include the bassoon. I think that's like 0.25 of a point. <laughs> uh, Jenny Brandon? 
Yes, Jenny Okay. Brandon has many works for the bassoon. Okay, something about colored stones. There you go, Thank Jenny you. Brandon colored stone. <laughs> Thank you, TK, You for got one. posting your practice videos so that that piece is in my head. <laughs> Uh, okay, Jenny Green and Colored Stones. Um, huh. There's another member of Amani Winds who composed a bassoon solo. Jeff Scott, Jeff Scott, Jeff Scott. Yes, Jeff Yeah. Scott has a piece, Elegy for Innocence. Um, and also there's a composer that <laughs> you love very much. Rena Esmail? Yes. How did you know she's my absolute number one <laughs> favorite? okay, I had to help you. I had Thank to lead you. the horse to water, but she did drink, people. <laughs> Bassoon community, I love you, and I'm so sorry. Okay, I'm going to end this with a, a nice softball right down the center of home plate. I don't know if that's a real baseball analogy. If it's a softball, it's softball analogy. Well, see, <laughs> I'm hoping this is an easy question to end on. Name three brands of bassoon cane. Now there's some overlap, so you're free to draw from the overlap. Bonazza? Yes. Is that something? Okay. Bonazza. Donzi? Yes. And Rigotti? There you go. Good job. I'd say you have a, a familiarity with the bassoon. Oh, the soonest. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Oh, obelisks were the worst. well, you can start scheming what oboe questions you're going to make me answer. Okay. I'm going to have to dig deep because you are very familiar. I try. I try my best. <laughs> if anyone has any ideas of how I can stump Jackie <laughs> on an oboe related trivia question, please send them my way. yeah, give her give her some help. Mm hmm. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleurie of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's oboechicago.com. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at JanetIngle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read making videos, classes, and boot camps. 
podcast listeners can use the code DISH for 10% off their first order at JanetIngle.com. We are delighted to welcome to Doublery Dish, Jaron Atherholt, Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. We love to start by letting our listeners get to know our guests by talking about how they began their journey on their instrument. So when did you start to play the oboe and how did you come to the instrument? I started playing the oboe when I was nine in the fourth grade. Basically, that was the year that we were allowed to pick an instrument for a band or orchestra. And my father had been in band and he had played the saxophone. So he wanted me to be in band, but he wanted me to play the oboe because he liked the duck in Peter and the Wolf. And (laughs) he felt like it would be not that many people would play. And so it would be an opportunity for me to travel. I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. And he wanted me to be able to travel outside the state and kind of see the world, quote unquote. And he thought the oboe might be my ticket. What led you to decide that the oboe was going to be your career? So I, we went on a family vacation to New York City and I called the Metropolitan Opera box office and left a message and said, I'm from Alaska and I'd like to take a lesson with the principal oboist. And Elaine Duvas called me back. And I took a two hour, I, I walked there. It was my like floral print dress with shoulder pads and tennis shoes. You know, <laughs> I walked there with my mom um, to her apartment overlooking Central Park. And she spent two hours with me and she taught me how to tongue on the wind. She taught me who John Mack was. She taught me about summer festivals and she taught me about interlocking. And then I started um, thinking about going to Interlochen. And so that it was at that. So in the eighth grade kind of is when I was like, okay, I'm going to make this push to try to do this professionally. But then um, my father was like, absolutely not. You have a high school right here in town. That's perfectly fine. I'm not paying all that money. So then I raised the money in order to go to Interlochen. So I went there for my junior and senior years and I raised about $25,000 total over the two years. Wow. But I did that um, in order to go there because I, I felt like, I mean, Miss Dubas told me I should go. So to be so focused at such a young age is a real advantage. And I would anticipate that moving from Alaska to Michigan at such a young age was quite a change. I'd love to hear about that experience. Was it scary or were you so hungry for the experience? Like, I guess, what was that like? I remember sitting on the plane and, you know, people sitting, I was just waiting for the person next to me to ask me where I was going. (laughs) I'm going to interlock and it's like college, but I'm in high school. Like I was so (laughs) excited, you know, I felt so independent and so like wearing your oboe on your back and you're like, ask me what this is. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I had a custom backpack made by dog mush, like the people that make um, clothing for dog mushers. They made me like a backpack And my favorite color was turquoise and I wanted a turquoise oboe bag. And they were like, no, we think you should have black. So they 
they embroidered my name in turquoise on the back. Oh, <laughs> do you still have it? You still have it, right? I think I do actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause you know, it's turbo strength. Like it's for like yeah. five below zero or whatever. Like I want one of those. (laughs) So I was super, super excited, but I was also like really nervous. I was nervous to not be in Alaska anymore. They have a bus at Interlochen that takes you to Traverse City once a week to go shopping at the mall. This was like a huge thing for me. I was like, Traverse City is such a big city and I'm going to the mall. We have a mall. Like I loved those trips to the mall, but I, I also like, like I said earlier, it's just like, there was something inside of me driving me. Like I knew that there could be a better situation out there for me and I could feel better and feel safe and feel um, good about myself and the work that I was doing. And so I was just willing to brave anything really to in pursuit of that. So this, this question is a little bit of a left from where we usually go from here, but you're talking about this really strong sense of self-motivation and personal empowerment through music. And I would love to know how that affects your teaching since you're now in a t- teaching position at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Yeah. I mean, it's really completely what I'm all about. I'm all about inspiring the kids to do great work and feel good about that. You know, I I feel one of my main themes in my life is if you work really hard and keep working really hard, it will work out. Something will work out because that is, has been the story for me. Um, And I realized And I realize more and more that we all come from different backgrounds and our stories are all different and the journey is different for all of us. And um, some people have a harder journey than others do. And that's real. Um, But I do think that if the focus is on the work and you love what you're doing, I do think that it's possible for things to work out. The students, you know, there's there's such a importance placed on achieving And, you know, what does that mean to achieve something? And I just, I think it's just so much more fulfilling to put the focus on the journey. So from Interlochen, could you walk us through your journey a little bit and how you got to where you are today? When I was auditioning for schools, I auditioned for six schools and I got into Cleveland um, where Mr. Mack was teaching and I loved Mr. Mack and we worked really well together and being in Cleveland was hard. It was a hard transition from Interlock and it was way more of a city environment. Um, I was in Alaska and then in Michigan in the woods, you know, at Interlock and then moving to Cleveland was like a big transition for me. And I was working um, first in a coffee shop and then in a restaurant the entire time that I was in Cleveland because I had to make money. And so, you know, I, I, I loved my time with Mr. Mack and I loved how he taught. And I just, it was just a really um, incredible relationship in my life. And I got to the end of my four years and he was like, well, there's this man named Robert Atherholt and he teaches at Rice. And I had never heard of him. I'd never heard of Rice. And he was like, 
he has a really beautiful Mozart concerto that was just released and take a listen. And um, I've had a lot of students go there and, and be really successful there. So I auditioned and um, I went to Rice. And the motivator behind that decision was in Texas, they have the public schools require their students to take private lessons. So I knew that I could make money teaching oboe rather than waiting table. And so that was a huge factor in my decision. And so I went to Rice for my master's and I absolutely loved it there. The whole program at Rice was completely orchestrally driven. And, you know, my goal had always been pretty much since the eighth grade to be principal oboe of a full-time symphony orchestra. So going to Rice really was um, a program that fit that goal. Um, I loved working with Mr. Atherholt and I loved working with the entire faculty. They were all, it was like they were a team there to support the students in through the audition process, which is a really challenging, difficult process to go through. The other thing about being at Rice was that, you know, I would walk down the halls and like so-and-so walked by who just got into Aspen and -and so-and-so walked by who just made the finals at the Met and -and so-and-so just got a job with the Florida Orchestra, you know, and I wanted that in my education. I wanted that sense of intensity and that sense of competition. I was a competitive person and I felt like I thrived in that. And so being at Rice, I mean, it was a lot. Like I felt like really anxious pretty much all the time, but (laughs) I also wanted that. And I felt like I needed that. And, and then I, um, I ended up getting my first job with the Sarasota opera while I was in my second year at Rice. So Um, amazingly, the school let me take a semester off. And so I did fall semester of my second year and then spring semester, I played in Sarasota opera. And then I came back to Rice for a third year to finish. And um, at the end of that third year, I went back to Sarasota and then I won my first full-time job in New Orleans um, that that spring, which was like a huge gift. Which was where I had the pleasure of meeting you for the first time. Yeah. Can you Tell us what you've learned in the audition process. I imagine that there's a lot of, well, there's, I know there's a lot of pressure, but to fulfill your childhood dream since the eighth grade seems like a whole nother level of self-pressure. So talk to us about how you handled the uh, audition experience and um, what made you so successful. That's so funny because I don't feel that I've been so successful. Um, so it's, it's nice to hear outsider's perspective because, you know, the voices in my head tell such a different story. Those voices are so mean. Yeah. Bad neighborhood up there. <laughs> okay. So I, again, it goes back to that like self in, inner self drive where um, there was just something inside of me that I knew that first of all, on a larger level, playing the oboe and playing music was what I was supposed to be doing. It, it just felt right. I didn't even have to think about it. Any kind of risk my teachers wanted me to take, like audition for this festival or enter this competition, of course, like I, it wasn't a second thought that I would do it. Even if I was super nervous about it, I of course was going to do it. And that was kind of how I felt about auditions. 
I started taking auditions my first year of my master's degree. And um, I was, I advanced about half the time. Um, and I was mainly just only advancing to the semifinals. And I finally, I was, I, you know, I had studied with John Mack. So obviously I didn't need any read help. And then finally, Mr. <laughs> Adult made me get your read. And he was like, <laughs> and so I have been hiding the fact that I was a really bad read maker. I, you know, I would order reads from Forest Double Reads in California when I was in Alaska. And it was like 40 below zero up there, you know, and the, the reads would get up there and I would just, you know, force them to work. And so then when I approached read making, it was like, you know, I had no, um, I just, my mentality was like, just force it to work as quick as possible so I can get <laughs> just like muscle through it. Yeah. Muscle through it. So I can get back. To, oh, this works good enough. Now I can go back to practicing. Like I was all right. about, and I just didn't want to spend a lot of time at the read desk. So, um, so he like finally figured out that my reads were horrible. I mean, they were very bad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just laughing because it's such a funny little secret. <laughs> yeah. Not that funny. <laughs> it caused a lot of pain. But I, he, said, he said to me, like, why don't you come to my house and watch me make reads before my orchestra week? And I was like, okay. And so I started going to his house and watching him prepare for the week with the Houston Symphony. And then I, and then he started saying, why don't you, why don't you now make a read in front of me? Oh, that was so nerve wracking. And so I started making reads in front of him. And um, like, that is one of my biggest pieces of advice I have for students is number one, show your reads to your teacher regularly. Oof. And that includes showing your teacher your knife, especially for oboe players. Like, in fact, have your teacher scrape your read with your knife. Because if they can't, then there's no reason that you would be able to scrape your reads. <laughs> <laughs> and then number two, scrape your reads in front of your teacher. It's really nerve wracking at first, but you do get used to it. And it's so helpful because we sit at that read desk alone and all of a sudden we start doing something that we don't realize we're doing. And then two weeks later, we're like down this path that we have no idea how we got down there, you know? And if somebody's watching you make your reads, they might be like, why are you leaving the plaque in so long? Or you're like hardly ever sharpening your knife or, you know, you should take more off the tip earlier or whatever, like whatever. the. Little I didn't realize you were left-handed. <laughs> oh, that would be another one. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So he, so then once that process started, then he, he realized my knife was not sharp. And then he taught me how to sharpen my knife. And then I went to New Orleans and I made the finals and then I won the audition. And um, I don't want to say it like, oh, like if you have a sharp knife, you'll win an audition. It, it did play a huge factor in making a read that I think contributed to the fact that I won that audition. But I think auditions are a much bigger topic than the sharpness of your knife. However, the sharpness of your knife is important. <laughs> I've heard the saying before that the best read will win the audition. Do you think that's true? 
I do think that there is truth to that. It's, it's more than that, but yes. So how did you find yourself transitioning to UNCSA and uh, talk to us about your journey in finding yourself there? Yeah. So again, like my whole dream, I never imagined myself as a professor. My whole dream was always just playing in the orchestra. And after I got to New Orleans, that same like motivation from inside me that was pushing me to take auditions also was there pushing me to like reach out a hand of help to young people that maybe were in a situation like mine so that music could be an outlet and a source of safety and a source of self-esteem and identity and all of those things that it was for me. So I got to New Orleans and I moved there the second year after Katrina and there was like very little organized music education going on. The city was completely devastated and destroyed. And so I like, I I went around searching, searching for students. I found two students that lived an hour away from where I was living and I would drive to their house every week. And it turned out of course that they did not have working oboes. And so I drove all around Louisiana finding oboes and like, people's basements and band, you know, in band rooms and collecting the oboes that I felt like could work and like trying to help these kids like get on a better footing with the oboe. And I just say that story because it was, you know, again, it was just like in me, I wasn't like, it was like, I didn't even think about it. It was just something that I did in addition to playing in the orchestra. And so I was always like creating projects and being involved in education. I started teaching at Tulane. Um, the kids there had, didn't even know what a woodwind quintet was. They had never, they didn't know how to set up. They didn't know. And so I started a chamber music program there. And um, I was just always doing projects like that. And I was also taking a lot of auditions. And I was doing okay. And I started getting asked to play with, um, larger orchestras as like a guest, uh, principal oboist. And so I was doing that. Um, and you know, it just, my husband and I had been there for a while, I guess, I guess we'd been there maybe 10 years or yeah, 10 years. I had been there 10 years. He had been there 11 years. And, um, we started feeling like, you know, it it might be time for a change. New Orleans is awesome. I love new Orleans. Uh, but I was looking for a change. And so um, I had been taking a lot of auditions and then this position like randomly came open. Um, Galit, you probably remember, it was like kind of surprising when we found out that the position was open. And so I talked to my father-in-law about it, uh, my teacher, and he said, you know, it's a great job. You might as well just go for it. And I, um, I had never created a CV and I didn't know how to create a cover letter or anything like that. So I had to reach out for help. Um, and I will say my rice professors were really there for me and they, they really helped me prepare, um, the materials that are needed for this kind of a audition process because it's so different than orchestra. And so I just took it one step at a time and, you know, my husband was super supportive and, it was just kind of like, let's see. And, and then, um, and then they wanted to talk to me on the phone. And so I had never done an interview like that before. And so we did that. And then they wanted to um, bring me onto campus. And I, 
I was playing the flower clock concerto in New Orleans um, around the same time. And I said, like, would it be okay for me to play this concerto? The piano part is horrendous. I felt so bad. But they had a pianist who was willing to do it, Robert Rocco. He's really great. And so, um, so I played the recital with that on it. Mm-hmm. And I did the whole day of interviewing and the teaching and um, yeah. And then, and then that's what happened. And so they offered me the position, but I was, you know, I was playing a concerto The I was going to be playing the Bach double with in new Orleans and we were going on tour to Carnegie hall and a dear, dear um, friend and patron of um, the LPO had just announced he would be endowing the principal oboe chair. And so I felt like it wasn't a time really to lead the orchestra. So for the first year, I did both positions. And my father-in-law came to UNCSA and taught um, several weeks while I was um, playing in the orchestra. And that was, um, that was a crazy year, but it was also very exciting. And the students got exposed to Bob Atherholt, which was really cool. And he also did um, master classes for like the entire double reads. And then he also was sitting in on orchestra rehearsals and chamber music. And it was exciting for the school, I think. And then the next year, um, I stopped playing in the orchestra and I, and I moved to North Carolina full time. Tell us about your chamber music group, Lyrica Baroque. And then I also want you to talk about the NOLA Chamber Fest, which is such a wonderful project that you and Lyrica Baroque have gotten off the ground. Okay, so um, like I said, I was doing a lot of projects in New Orleans and um, one of them was chamber music. I um, was very, very privileged to go to a summer festival called the Marlboro Music Festival. And I learned a lot about what chamber music can be. And um, I think I think many people who go to Mar- go to Marlboro like want to recreate Marlboro in their real lives in some way. It's just such a magical place. So that was kind of the inspiration behind starting this chamber music organization. Um, Lyrica Baroque started kind of as an, an ensemble. And it evolved into really a nonprofit organization that that is doing chamber music projects um, in New Orleans. And one of those projects is NOLA Chamber Fest, which is a festival and competition. And um, Galit is one of our judges this year, which we're super excited about. And uh, it's really great. I, you know, there's a lot to to talk about in terms of entrepreneurship and starting a nonprofit organization and, and all of that, which y'all, I know y'all know from starting your podcast and t- tell me if you agree with me that it's a good idea to make sure you believe in what you're doing. <laughs> That's like key and then start small. And it, it brings me back to what I said before of like, it takes hard work over a long period of time. If you work really hard for a year, things will happen, but, but it, it, it's more than that. And that's why you really have to believe in what you're doing because, um, because otherwise there's just, it's too much, it's too hard to do if you don't, you know, really feel passionately about what you're doing. You have to have a, a really good reason. I think so. Yeah. Can you talk to us about some favorite memories that stand out in your mind as you look back over the course of your career? So I'm going to say that 
one like really amazing memory and it's many memories is playing second oboe to Mr. Atherholt in the Grand Teton Music Festival. Oh my I God, played that's next so to cool. Him. Yeah, for six years and I learned so much and um, just that experience because I, I had been in the hall in Jones Hall in Houston and heard him play in the orchestra many times and his sound was huge, like huge. And then sitting next to him and hearing like the intimacy of his playing and, and having that realization of like how to do that, how to play really intimately, but have it project so big in the hall um, was very inspiring. And I, I loved, I loved those summers um, playing with him. Um, a, a super embarrassing memory <laughs> is uh, I was at Music Academy of the West getting ready for a masterclass with Cindy D. Almeida. And I was in the bathroom getting ready, doing my hair. And I had my reed in my mouth for some reason. And I dropped the reed down the sink. Now y'all know I'm not a good reed maker. Okay. So I went and got the property manager and got him to take apart the sink to get my reed out. It went down the drain. Yeah. It went down the drain into that little loop thing. It went into the U-bend under the sink. Yeah. This is in a dorm. This is a public <laughs> This isn't a private bathroom in my dorm room. This is the public hall bathroom that all the ladies share. <laughs> So the plumber came and got my readout and I was like, oh, thank God. And then I just did whatever, hydrogen peroxide or something. And then I went and played. And then she was like, she was like, someone told me that you dropped this down a sink. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, that's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> In the magic, she was like, that's disgusting. I was like, I didn't have another read. So again... <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be prepared yeah <laughs> oh gross I can't believe I did that and did I learn my lesson to ask for help with read making no like I said I didn't show you <laughs> years later it's so funny it's embarrassing <laughs> oh so you mentioned Bob Atherholt's incredible ability to play intimately and softly and have it project through the hall. And I would love to dig a little deeper into that. What can you tell us about that skill? And I imagine my guess is that it has something to do with focus in the sound and not overblowing, but just finding that perfect center of the sound. Am I right? Tell me more. Um, I remember like one of the, I guess, perks of dating my teacher's son was that <laughs> he would come to New Orleans and hear the orchestra and I would get a lot of great feedback. Yeah. And one of the first times he came, we were playing Beethoven um, violin concerto and he came up to me afterwards and I was like, what do you think? And he was like, Jaren, there's a difference between playing loud and projecting. And then he turned around and walked away. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> and so like, I started thinking about it, you know, and, um, and 
And that's why I say, like, when I would sit next to him, I started like putting it together. And, you know, Mr. Atherholt is all about resonance and ring and color. And the way that we achieve that is having a read that's balanced, responsive, vibrant, and not loose so that we can not have to manipulate the read. Any kind of lip pressure dampening the read is going to dampen resonance, ring, and color. And that is literally the secret. So, you know, I think that there's this misconception of like, I need to make this big, huge, beefy read so that I can be heard and so that my sound is dark. And um, and he really helped me to see the light, like to, tr- to trust. It's hard to let go. It, it's like, I, I want to cling to that read because it gives me this sense of control mm-hmm. and it gives me this sense of like comfort or something. Um, but letting go, like truly letting go and just letting the read vibrate is the secret to great projection and, and yes. really a beautiful sound and great playing all of that. Now it has to go together with a great, stream of air and he was obsessed with that as well and so the great stream of air has to do with the inhale and then also with the exhale um and so that you know that's definitely if you have like a beautiful read but you don't know how to support you know there's really no point you're still gonna have to use lip pressure to try to get the sound out Mm. so the two have to go together and and you know, for people who are maybe working on their embouchure or something, I, I have worked on my embouchure my whole career because I told you I, I just started getting those reads to work at 40 below zero, you know, whatever I had to do. Oh um, and so I've, had, I've been trying to unlearn that for like 25 years, <laughs> but it's impossible to truly play with an embouchure that's off the read if you don't have a read that will facilitate that or if you don't have an airstream that will facilitate that so like they all kind of have to work together so to those of you out there that are um have that voice in your head being like don't bite biting's bad don't bite biting's bad you know if you have a if you don't have a read that allows you not to bite then don't don't be so hard on yourself like we got to do what we got to do um and you know, work with your teacher in terms of all three components, you, the oboe, the reed, the sound comes from equally all three components. So um, they kind of have to work together when you're making a change like that. Oh, that is brilliant. I love that. I wanted to ask about, I know that you practice yoga and how that uh, physically and mentally has impacted your oboe playing if it has. Yeah. So the kind of yoga that I practice is called Ashtanga yoga, and it's all about a set sequence of poses that gets your heart rate up and you learn how to breathe slowly through that. And so I started doing it because it kind of directly helped me with my anxiety. Like when my heart rate would rise for an audition, I could figure out how to breathe deeply and slowly, even under that um, extreme pressure. Mm -hmm. It's like the kind of yoga where you show up there's a three hour time block and you just show up to the space and you start your own practice and the teacher walks around and gives individual instruction. And I really liked that. It resonated with me kind of like oboe playing. So 
I love that. And um, there was a wonderful teacher in New Orleans, Melanie Fowler, who um, I practiced with all the time. She was my teacher. And um, I even took a training with her and I started teaching classes at her studio. And like, there was like a community, you know, that built up around that. And I, and I really loved that. And then when I moved to North Carolina, um, that that Ashtanga community does not exist here in Winston-Salem. There is a community in Durham, which is about an hour and 40 minutes away. And then there's one in Charlotte, which is an hour and 30 minutes away. So I was kind of already struggling a little bit and then um, the pandemic hit. And so there's, I really haven't felt comfortable going to a yoga class. And so I've been doing yoga by myself. And the thing, the reason I'm sharing this is because um, these, the qualities in me that are like very competitive and perfectionistic, I have always thought were good qualities in terms of winning an audition but I've started to realize that those qualities kind of went overboard probably a long time ago and were making it hard for me to live inside my own head. You know, it's like, no matter what I did, it was not good enough. And I even said it during this conversation where I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you view my career as successful. You know, it's just like the stories that my brain tells me, I just, I don't think I can trust them. And so you know, letting go of being super perfect at the yoga has been kind of my journey the last two years. And it's been really hard for me to let go of it and do it in a way that just feels good. And that feels calming and gentle rather than like forced and like disciplined and critical. Um, And Interestingly, I think it has changed my playing as well so that I'm not playing in this way of like, I need this. It's more of like, I have something to share. I love that so much. It's like the, the motivations and the coping mechanisms that you adopted as a younger person were really, really helpful to you at that time. And so they're still around, but they're not helping you anymore. They're trying to help you, but it's not helpful anymore. It's hurting you. And so, you know, rethinking your way out of that is really inspiring and difficult, I would imagine, as a person who struggles with my own anxiety. (laughs) It's hard to let go of the, it's just like the read. It's like, I, I think I just, I crave that feeling of control. But I mean, the reality is we have very little control in general. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so good to keep the focus on the work. And that's the other thing that the yoga does is it's all about just showing up and doing practice, like just practice yoga, even if it's 10 minutes. And that's been really helpful in my oboe playing and in my teaching as well of just like, just show up for your instrument every day try to be well rested and try to approach it with a positive attitude. And all you can do is your very best in that day. But if you show up for your instrument every day over a long period of time, you will become that player that you've always wanted to be. And then you won't be fearful and you won't be anxious. You'll be excited to share your music. We usually ask, what is your advice for young people who aspire to have a career like yours? That sound that sounded like it fit that. Is there anything else you would want to add to that in terms of advice to young people? 
I would encourage everyone out there to be brave in speaking your truth. And if you speak your truth and someone doesn't hear you, keep speaking it and keep asking for help until you find somebody who can help you. That is so beautiful. Jaren, this was such a wonderful talk. Thank you so much for generously giving us your time. We really appreciate it. I know you love that interview as much as I did. As always, you can send your oboe trivia questions <laughs> to me. <laughs> at all of our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can listen to us on all of the platforms where you get your podcasts. And of course, we love when we hear from you at doublereaddish at gmail.com. So if you have anything you want to keep away from Jackie in the subject <laughs> line, right, Jackie, don't read this. <laughs> Who do we have coming up next? On our next episode, we welcome Alex Davis, bassoonist and founder and artistic director of the Sugar Hill Salon Chamber Music Series. Ooh, since I said the artist, it's my turn. Galee, it's time to end this nerve parade. Go make reads. That felt very different. Yeah, I didn't like it.